Hello, and welcome to another episode of Setting the Tone, an ER retrospective, the show where we do a chronological breakdown of every episode of our favorite TV medical drama. My name is Elizabeth, and joining me today, as always, are Lauren. Hello. And Daniel. Hey. Today, we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 10, which is titled Homeless for the Holidays. The episode aired on December 19th, 1996. Lauren, what was going on this week, 24 years ago? U.S. TV industry executives agreed to implement a rating system for all broadcasted content, Y7, TV14, TVMA, etc. Content is assigned a rating by the individual network broadcasting it. Florida Gators quarterback Danny Werfel wins the 62nd Heisman Trophy Award. He would go on to play in the NFL for six seasons, accomplishing almost nothing. (laughs) Tom Cruise demands that you show him the money as Jerry Maguire debuts and takes the number one spot at the box office. And Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton remains the number one song and is stuck in my head for another week. Thank you, Lizzie, for these notes. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of just a personal note that I, for me, I feel like Jerry Maguire symbolizes the first super duper popular movie that I remember being aware of. Does that, like, do, do you, I mean, it might not necessarily be Jerry Maguire, but do you remember the first, like, super duper popular movie you remember, like, re- you remember everyone else knowing about, even I mean, if you didn't see it yourself? I think for me, that was probably Independence Day, because, like, all of my friends saw it, and a bunch of people, yeah, I guess a bunch that's of my true. friends loved it. That was, that, this, we were that's, all... that was earlier this year, right? 96. Yeah, that was early. That was over the summer. Yeah, you're probably right. That probably was more my, like, speed. I just, I have a very, like, visual memory of seeing all the, like, Jerry Maguire uh, tapes in the, like, blockbuster. And, like, that mm. being the movie that everybody was seeing. But, yeah, you're right. I do remember the the uh, Independence Day marketing and stuff. But For me, I think it's Truman Show. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know why that's the one that pops up to me. That's the next year, right? That's 97. Which is makes sense because you're a couple years younger than Lizzie and I, so yep. that that makes that that tracks. I don't know, just like I said, personal thing that like it's interesting. I like that we go through and and highlight these things because it's like it's sparking memories and stuff yeah. for me. My my pop culture memories are going to start probably in the next year or so. Yeah, is when yeah. I'm really going to start remembering like remembering stuff from a kid, not just being aware of it after the fact. Exactly. Well, we already got we already got the Pokemon games releasing, so I am already self aware <laughs> as a human being. You're you're point. set from uh, eleven through thirty. So yeah, I didn't start playing them until second grade, so I've uh, got a little bit longer. Excuse you, I was eight years old here. Oh, Thank you very me. much. Sorry. Sorry. All right. So uh, what else was on this week? Uh, this is kind of a weird week for television because, as you probably noted by the air date, we're buttoned right up against Christmas here. Uh, so a lot of uh, shows are either taking the week off or just running reruns. Uh, and that's what we have at 8 p.m. with Friends. Uh, they just ran a rerun. At 8.30 p.m., uh, we had News Radio get slotted in instead of The Single Guy. News radio normally would run, I think, on Wednesday nights on NBC, and it was one of my kind of low-key faves of the 90s NBC shows. Uh, The episode they aired this evening was The Trainer, uh, where Phil Hartman's character Bill McNeil joins a gym, and a very funny episode with uh, Ben Stiller as a guest star. One of my, Actually, probably one of the better episodes of the whole series. At 9 p.m., you had Seinfeld checking in with the episode The Andrea Doria, where George loses his apartment to a survivor of the Andrea Doria sinking. Uh, And then at 9.30 p.m., suddenly Susan checks in with The Walkout. And then for this week's episode, you've got 30.5 million viewers tuning in. Again, we're coming up on Christmas, so a lot of viewers are busy doing other things. So we've 
dropped just a I think it's two million, two or three million since last week, and overall about seven million over the last two uh, episodes. Uh, but we will start to see an uptick after the first of the year. Uh, this week's episode is directed by Davis Guggenheim. This is his one and only episode of the series that he directed. Um, he's primarily known as a producer, um, having done films like Training Day and Inconvenient Truth. He seems to do a lot of politically motivated uh, documentary films. He seems to be primarily a documentary filmmaker. And also, uh, he is married to actress Elizabeth Shue, which I thought was interesting. Lucky man. Yeah. Uh, Why am I blanking on who that is? She's one of those actresses you forget about, at least for me, you forget about for long stretches of time. And then when you see her in things, it's like, and she's usually one of the better parts of shitty movies. Like, have you ever seen Hollow Man? No. Yes. All right. She's in Hollow Man and she goes like full Sarah Connor Terminator at the end of it. And it's pretty great. Like, See, it's moments like this that make me wish I kept my phone on me for recording. (laughs) In any event. Oh, okay. You can Google her later. You'll know who she is. Lizzie didn't Uh, Google. I I barely recognize her. So uh, this week's episode is written by Samantha Howard Corbin. This is her second out of seven episodes that she would write. Uh, We previously talked about her episode that she wrote uh, last call earlier this season. And uh, taking a break from his Batman duties, our previously on ER is brought to us by George Clooney this week. And we open the episode. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. As Jeannie walks down snowy owl stairs into Doc Magoo's and... Lauren put this in the notes, but I vehemently disagree that she is so ready. Lauren said that she is so ready for Christmas in snow. We've had quite a year, and I just want beautiful, white, fluffy snow and Christmas music. And I'm trying to hold out till Thanksgiving for Lizzie's sanity, but boy, howdy, I'm ready. And as someone who's worked retail for the better part of almost the last 15 years, thankfully I will not be doing it this year. I hate Christmas. <laughs> I hate Christmas music. I I am... The human equivalent of the Grinch. Snow is pretty, but as long as I could, you know, see it on a in a picture. Yeah, snow's not it, not outside my window. Yeah, and if you have to live in it, like it's pretty the first time. Like it's it's cool the first snow of the season, and then the novelty immediately wears off, and it's annoying and cold and gross, and you can't okay. wait for it to be over. Y'all keep saying this as if I'm not a valid Midwesterner who grew up in Michigan. Like I get a vote in this. Yeah, no, we're not saying I'm not. Well, saying no, you don't. Daniel's Daniel's, saying, Daniel's don't. saying, oh, it's fine until after the first one. Like I'm not somebody who's experienced <laughs> snow on a regular basis. No, see, I am. I'm I'm the opposite. I I grew up on the East Coast where we an inch of snow shut things down for a week so like i grew up without any kind of snow so the fact that i live now somewhere where i get regular like large amounts of snow is still not okay yeah i was in i was in college in chicago for the polar vortex so like yeah i love it give me more snow it's great walk into college classes with the icy sidewalks yeah that was a real fun time snow i love ice can go fuck itself Cause yeah, it was 2011, right? That was the one that shut down Lakeshore Drive. Yep, I think it was 2011. And buried all the cars in Lakeshore. Anyway, getting getting back to the episode. <laughs> Snow hatred aside, Jeannie is meeting Carrie at at Doc's, and uh, Jeannie's tests aren't detecting a viral load anymore. So Jeannie's like, "Oh, it seems to imply like that means like she's cured in some way." Because she said, maybe now I won't need to get a lawyer. I think what she means is that with the viral load being as low as it is, that maybe the risk of transmission isn't as high, so she won't have to get a lawyer to keep her job. Fair enough. Yeah, I think think that's the implication, that now that her viral load is testing low enough, maybe Mark will drop it, I think is the the implication there. 
But Carrie is fighting to gain, get Jeannie off paper pushing duties, essentially in triage and whatever, and back to you know her career as a phys- physician assistant. And she has more meetings with Mark and Anspa coming up about it. So again, Mama Carrie's on the case. Then we have Mark going into the ER carrying a bright red round sled, which is a Christmas present for Rachel. And in this, Randy Quick mentions sledding in Grand Rapids. So shout out to another Michigander on ER. Um, and then they're like, why'd you get her a sled? Why not get her a video game or something? And Mark's like, I didn't recognize any of this stuff. Like, it's getting to the point where all the games are about a pop culture thing that I'm not aware of. And I don't know what Duke Nukem was, but he looked nasty. And, so that's a good call there, Mark. Yeah. And Gant is at the admit desk looking exhausted and just awful. And he gets a phone call and we find out someone is not coming to visit him now. We don't quite know. It's probably his girlfriend, but at this point it's not established. And uh, we go from there to our first audio of the episode. Uh, one of those aforementioned meetings before uh, with Carrie, Mark, and Anspa. You want the two of us to decide? I'm sure none of us in this room would want anyone on our team endangering patients in any way. As attendings, you're closest to the everyday workings of the ER. So there is no hospital-wide policy? Legal advisors, we handle it department by department. So if we get sued, it's the individual attendings' butt that's on the line? Let me remind you, Dr. Green, if we were aware that there was an HIV-positive healthcare worker here at County and the public got wind of it, started filing suits, all of our butts would be on the line. So HIV-positive healthcare workers can be fired because the hospital doesn't want to be sued? No. In Illinois, it's forbidden to fire any employee because they're HIV positive. In theory, but people have been forced to quit. Nobody's forcing anybody to quit. What about restricting their duties to the point where they're no longer working within their job description? I wouldn't uh, presume to tell you two how to run your department, but uh, to give you an idea of the current thinking, these are the uh, CDC findings. Illinois state law and pending legal cases and various NIH and journal reports. Now, look, I know you two have had your differences in the past. Do you think you can work together and solve this? Absolutely. Sure. Real vote of confidence there, Mark. Also, I love how Anspa is just like, eh, you fucking deal with it. Yeah, it's your problem. What is it with this hospital and having ineffective administrators? But yeah, I, I love the just giant stack of pamphlets and binders he hands to both of them. It's like, here, you're already really swamped. Do this research and figure it out, gang. Right. You're the hospital administrator, dude. Isn't this your job? Shouldn't you have a team whose job it is for this kind of stuff? Well, apparently it's legal. That's saying just like, I don't know, just have them deal with it. I I feel like you need to get a new legal if that's the case. Yeah. (laughs) We should should, uh, have uh, get our expert legal counsel get his opinion on this like Like, this is 1996 folks like hiv is not a new concept at this point it's still a very stigmatized concept but it's not a new concept i would love to hear both nurse jen and jake terrell esquire opinions on this matter yeah i i don't know like I, i just can't imagine that even like lizzie said even in 1996 i can't imagine that that this is the chosen approach like, it just seems very hands-off and very, like, it feels like you're leaving yourself open to more issues by doing it this way. But right. I don't know. But uh, we go from there into straight into the intro with some more bangs. I think we are 10 for 10 on the bangs this season. Mm-hmm. I believe so. 
uh, we come out of that intro. We see uh, Doug is ordering some flowers for his mom. Oh, sweet Doug. Uh, Carter comes in complaining about the shower in Gant's apartment. And out of this, we've discovered that uh, Gant is supposed to be coming to Carter's family Christmas party. But as we learned before the intro, the woman on the other end of the phone was his girlfriend who will not be joining him. So Gant's normal one continues. Uh, Doyle is running a betting pool for the college football game, uh, football bowl games, uh, $20 buy-in. And Carol's mom is still staying with her. And uh, both of these things, the betting pool and Carol's mom, will factor heavily into this episode. We also learn that the ER is drowning in patients, and Mark just, you know, comes up and casually in the middle, in the front of everyone, tells, sort of just in the middle of everyone, tells Doug that they need to hammer out policy on an HIV-positive workers for the department, and just, yeah, tell Doug, the, one of the biggest goddamn gossips in the entire department, and of course he wants to, he's like, anybody we know? Yeah, and then Mark just gives a little eyebrow raise, like, you know it. Ugh. We need to go on record at the top here as saying that the only two people worth saving in this episode are, well, three, I'll say, Jeannie, Carrie, yep. and Halle. The rest of them can all just fall off the face of the earth. They're all terrible people in this episode. They they have their moments in other episodes. This ain't it, Chief. This whole episode mm. is is just scorched earth. They're all terrible except for those three. Uh, speaking of awful... I'm going to start it, and then Miss, Miss Elizabeth is going to teach put some, put some teaching on all of us here at setting the tone. So trauma number one, I'm thinking this is meant to be the played for laughs trauma of the episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, my existence is a joke. And so. it's inc- So as Lizzie mentions, it's incredibly transphobic. We have a woman wheeled in, and I'm trying to think how to even begin to describe this. We find out that... She got into an argument with her boyfriend, likely had a heart attack from the stress of it. She is clutching her, cl- clutching her uh, Christmas goose, and throughout it, they keep misgendering her, calling her he, while they're, you know, helping start taking her vitals and everything. She mentions, oh, you know, it's the, my time of the month, and I just get crazy, and Carrie and Carol both roll their eyes like, oh, pff, this this trans woman or this. Did Carrie roll her eyes? I don't remember. They, her they doing give that. each other like a meaningful. Look. Yeah, I remember. I remember Carrie looking at Carol, and I remember Carol rolling her eyes. Like Carol think, was particularly. I think egregious. it's meant to be. They're both quote in on the joke. Yeah. But so no, this this drag queen or this trans woman can't have a period because. And I want to note it, this. Hold on. This woman mentions being on hormone therapy. Yeah, I was gonna say that's what I think. That's she's definitely not a drag queen because she's on hormone. But I'm saying at the time, it was there was poor distinction between the two, and that's fair. And when she first comes in, we're not sure if she's a drag queen or a trans woman until they actually specifically state. Yeah, yeah. But that, but that is the big distinction between a lot of drag queens, quote unquote, and transgender women is trans women live, you know, present full present full time as women for the most part unless something else is hindering that which in which in case they're still extremely valid trans women are women no matter what exactly and drag queens tend to be cis men traditionally cis gay men but yes performing as women for certain events yeah but this is totally a thing this is a thing that i have experienced on being on hormones for as long as i have i get period symptoms yes she does yeah and they're (laughs) fucking awful and they were not something I was fully expecting, but just, 
I get them infrequently. Yeah. But like it's if you're on because I'm not on progesterone like some trans women are because the side effects of it, including regular period symptoms, were too much for me. So, you know, there's there's a cycle. Yeah. They are the exact same symptoms that a cis woman would get aside from, you know, bleeding, obviously, but... Yeah, like, I wanted to go to the hospital the first time it happened to me because I had no idea what the fuck was going on. And, and I then... had to sit down and explain that it was... It, Lizzie was becoming a woman, and... <laughs> <laughs> it was just it was just her time. Yeah, but this is anecdotally totally a thing, and you hear it from a lot of other trans people if you're involved in those communities... I'm not sure if there's any, like, specific research that has been done on the topic, but trust me. Coming from a trans person who has been on hormones for five, for almost six years now, it's a thing. I and it's th- unpleasant. I think when I did a Google on it, out of curiosity, I think part of what it was is estrogen occasionally stimulates soft tissue movement, like your uterus would be. Mm. And because the a lot of the tissue in your gut and everything is similar it still gives that contraction and stomach cramping and everything as if... Either way, it sucks, and I'm glad it doesn't have to happen to me every month like it does for some trans people. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is the worst scene to date on mm-hmm. the show. Yeah, because they, because like they repeatedly... like No one corrects. No, there, there's no right. voice of reason here. There is no... Uh, there's no larger perspective here it's they're not they're not meant to learn anything from this scene they're just it like you said it is purely for comic relief and that you know i I, we we, going back to season one with er confidential like that was obviously a very trauma heavy episode and that was a very upsetting episode in the way that that woman was treated by the staff in the er but we still managed to find ways to give them credit for the way it was uh, presented in that it was not presented as a joke. It was presented as a real issue. And those attitudes were presented as though they were incorrect. And it it might not have been as nuanced as we would like in a 2020 lens, but for 1994 or five, I forget when that episode airs, it's still um, miles ahead of where a lot of other things in the zeitgeist were at that time. This isn't, this is a joke. Like this is played for laughs played to like mocked like she is to be mocked and like look at this you know late look at this guy in drag is essentially what the the joke is here right and it's just lazy the only two good things i can think in a, a good is a generous term for this is they bother mentioning she's on hormone therapy mm-hmm. and they for the most part stop misgendering her once she corrects them yeah uh, yeah, like you That's said. That's the, but it's it's the bare minimum. Yeah, it's still meant to be played for laughs. Like, look at this hysterical man in drag. Yeah, I'm just Clutch, sh- clutching clutching his goose. Yeah, I'm just really struggling to come up with another example. Not even necessarily one because, we, as we know, there are other examples of transgender patients being brought into the ER over the course of the show later on uh, to varying degrees of effectiveness. But I'm just struggling to cope with any example of any kind that's worse than this. No, this is it. I think this is the worst scene of the show to this point, and it sucks because, I mean, it really brings down this whole episode. Like, I texted you guys uh, as I was watching it. I was <laughs> I was like, hey, fair warning. Like, within the first five minutes, this episode goes completely off the rails, and it doesn't really recover. So, <laughs> you know, good yeah, luck. Yeah, this was not needed. Yeah, especially not this week. Jesus Christ. 
Uh, it's election week for those of you not aware of our recording schedule. But yeah, then we have Randy and Carol are talking about the rumor mill with the secret meetings and Jeannie walks by and they tell Jeannie like, oh, it's, you know, they're meeting about someone on the in the department with HIV. And then Charlie, Kirsten Dunst, shows up with little baby Ahmed because something is wrong. And then we go over to Doyle, who this episode is going to do her best White Knight Doug impression. <laughs> and I think she does it pretty okay. Yeah. She doesn't totally fuck it up. That's yeah. true. Yeah, it actually works. It actually looks good on Doyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the best I think she's looked since she's arrived. But she's examining a woman who has a really bad black eye and some facial trauma, most likely a broken jaw. And the woman is a frequent flyer because of fractures and needing sutures. And Doyle just offhandedly comments, I guess, I guess hubby thought he'd go out with a bang this year, too. Which maybe don't say that to the battered woman. Yeah. Like, I understand you're enraged about her being abused, but maybe don't. One step forward, yeah. two steps back. Yeah. <laughs> then after that, we go over to Carrie and Mark in the lounge. They are discussing possible solutions uh, as in regards to Jeannie. So what if we change the disclosure form to include that people might be treated by an HIV-positive healthcare worker? Start a witch hunt? Well, we have to inform the patients. It's the law. Okay, take it you haven't read this. Americans with Disability Act? Mm-hmm. I don't know. what The proposals, addendum? Here. Read this. It states that you can't disclose one risk without disclosing equal risks. Meaning? Meaning that the patient doesn't have a choice of whether they're treated by uh, someone with the flu or someone with a hangover, a doc who just had a fight with his spouse, an intern who's been on for two days, someone with HIV. Yeah, and Illinois law says that not only can we not prevent people from knowing that they've been put at risk, but we have to tell them. So you'd rather follow the Illinois law than the federal statute? You know, because I'm concerned doesn't mean I'm some kind of bigot. Your concern can't be extended to prevent Jeannie from earning her living. Nobody is talking about firing her. But we do have a responsibility to our patients. What about a responsibility to Jeannie? She's using universal precautions. Are you frightened here, Mark? Is that it? No, I'm just trying to keep us all from being sued. You think I want to get sued? But opening up Jeannie's personal tragedy to public scrutiny is the surest way to invite frivolous lawsuits and mass hysteria. So we break the law? If we have to, yes. I care about Jeannie, Carrie, but there's a larger issue here than your personal loyalty to a friend. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but we're swamped. Whenever you're done. We're done now. Mark, we haven't even made a dent. Would you rather jeopardize patient care further by sitting here with a traffic jam and triage? Well, just shouting about it in the lounge. Real great. Really? Yeah. It's not, this is not as bad as what happens later on with them. But we'll get there. Yeah. So Mark comes right out of the lounge and is immediately, uh, I think it's uh, Chuni who runs into mm-hmm. him and says that there are three sex workers in one of the uh, curtain areas that he needs to go take a look at. And she charmingly describes them as ho, ho, ho. Great. Just So not only are we, do we have transphobia, we have some nice sex worker shaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 12 minutes in, if you're keeping score at home. We're 12 minutes yeah. in. So we see Doug examining a little boy who ate some mistletoe. Uh, Doug prescribes him a half-juice, half-activated charcoal cocktail. Then he exits out into the hallway and sees Charlie. Uh, they're discussing Ahmed having his uh, bloody stool and urine. And uh, Doug informs Charlie that she needs to find the mom and get her there uh, before he can medicate uh, little baby Ahmed. So we will. this will be kind of a through line for the episode for Doug. And then uh, next up, we have uh, Doris bringing in a homeless gentleman that was lit on fire by kids. Real great. 
This is, a, this, this is a Christmas episode, gang. Remember that. This is the whole thing is a Christmas episode. Tis the season. Yikes. Uh, but his dog, Nick, is is the best boy and barked until the cops came and they got him into the hospital. But he begs he begs them not to take Nick to a kennel if something happens and because Nick is all the homeless man has. Yeah, and this uh, homeless gentleman here, who we won't really get much of a chance to see again, uh, at least not conscious, is played by an actor named Charles Deerkop, who was in a a lot of different things, um, particularly in like 60s, 70s Hollywood. Uh, He was in movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sting, and Silent Night. I had a personal anecdote. We don't have to keep this in the episode, but Nick and that gentleman remind me of the... um, the homeless man with a cat that I often see by my work. Good news, he's still doing well. Aaron, Mom, and I saw him when we were driving by Good. recently, and I was just like, oh, I miss him. His kitty is so sweet. But um, yeah, I love that cat. Very, very sweet and well-behaved and very clearly taken care of. But then we see Ahmed has a mass in his abdomen. There are no other adult relatives available who can consent to surgery, but he is hemorrhaging into his right kidney, and they do an ultrasound, and it appears to be a Willems tumor. So, consent or not, he's got to be taken care of or it will be tragic. So, Dr. Keaton and Peter are working on Ahmed's tumor and Carter is assisting and they are removing the kidney. And it's just very, very well done. Benton has learned from his past mistakes and is going very slowly, following Abby's directions, just working through it. That's what they almost had to do to me when I was a kid. Yeah, don't you have like half a kidney on one yep, side? I have an under underdeveloped kidney on my uh. right side. So because of a blockage that disrupted the growth patterns and apparently revealed on a recent MRI has a bunch of scarring on it. So oh, neat. Still functions though. Still good. And then a woman is talking to Carol and using a Blitzen hand puppet and clearly delusional as Carol is trying to take her history. This is just such an odd hodgepodge episode. Like there is no great flow to it there's a lot of through lines to the stories but it's just so far it's just kind of a mess and we go back over to doyle with her uh battered with her battered woman patient beth uh beth only has a fractured cheekbone thankfully uh but doyle tries to get her to go to a shelter when the when the husband bursts in and we've all seen this storyline before but uh malik and doyle give him the biggest death stares ever and Doyle has Malik escort the husband to chairs and comes up with a bunch of other tests tests they need to do on Beth to buy her some time. To make her decision. Yeah. And it's then like, do you want to hear more about that shelter? And then we get to have one of the few uh, real bright spots in this otherwise dark shithole of an episode. We get uh, Mark trying to get Nick the dog to eat at the desk. And we get this really uh, fun little like POV shot from uh, Nick's point of view, uh, looking straight on Mark's face. And he's, like, trying to, you know, reach out and feed him stuff. And he keeps, like, pulling his hand back like he's going to get bit. And uh, Randy is over Mark's shoulders. Like, why don't you just take him down to the morgue and let him beg for table scraps? And then, Gross. of course, because dogs are wonderful and they can sense uh, they can sense purity, uh, Hale comes over and the puppy immediately rolls over for her. So Good boy. They, they get it. But that, of course, is immediately undercut by uh, the revelation that Mr. Collins, Nick's owner, is crashing. And whose films are those? They could this time they could be Mr. Collins. He's been in there a minute. Yeah, could have. Yeah, sure. Okay, fam. (laughs) But uh, Carol's calling psych for that reindeer woman, and a fancy gentleman is looking for that woman. Do we find out anything more about that storyline, or is that where that is exactly where it stops? We don't even find out who she is. It's 
Yeah. Because they're talking about a Bentley being parked in the ambulance bay and this guy comes in. So, like, there's a mystery here. We could have focused on that instead of the transphobic bullshit. Mm-hmm. But Nick, Nick at least benefits from the transphobic bullshit because they took the woman's goose away earlier and Nick is having a Christmas feast. <laughs> he found <laughs> Just, it and is eating it. Yeah, he found it. They stashed it under the desk. That feels like a Jerry move. To yeah, stash yeah. it, like, here, Jerry, can you put this away? Yeah, sure. We put it under the desk right next to the dog that we're also storing. And then we go over to Doug. He just called DC, DCFS because clearly this child has not been looked after properly because obviously with something this advanced, they, someone should have noticed and should have brought him in. Uh, but Charlie begs him not to, and Doug offers to buy her lunch while they wait for the mom. And then we see Carter and Dr. Keaton. Now, now every time I write Abby in the notes, I just say Dr. Keaton because of you two. <laughs> But, um, it's Abby as Abby Lockhart. Thank you very much. I've noticed every time I write Abby, you two say Dr. Keaton. So now I'm just going to as well. So Carter and Dr. Keaton are discussing their Christmas Eve plans. And Abby kind of thought maybe they'd hang out. And Carter was like, oh, yeah, I have a family thing, but I can probably get out of it. I'll talk to my friend about canceling so we can eat pizza together. Don't do this, Carter. Gant needs you. We even get run-of-the-mill shittiness in this episode. Like, it doesn't even have to be, like, transphobia or, you know, any any of the the hot-button ones. We can just have regular run-of-the-mill shittiness, too. What I don't understand about this storyline here is that Carter is in his, what, early to mid-20s, probably? Like, he's... Probably mid-20s. Yeah, like, yeah. 25, 20... med school. I feel, yeah, like, I, feel, yeah. I feel like 25, 26 is a safe bet, you know? What family Christmas party is such a fucking rager that you can't do both? Like, what, like, what, is he expecting that he's going to be at this Christmas party till four in the morning? Like, why can't he go to the Christmas party and then go hang out with his girlfriend afterwards? Go to the Christmas party from, like, four to nine. Yeah, order of operations, my dude. You can do both. Like, there's enough time in the day. Like, you afraid you're going to be in bed by ten? Like, what is, I I just don't get it. If you're me. Well, I mean, I... You're not 26, okay? <laughs> like you're. No, I'm 28. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. that's the that's the cutoff. That is the cutoff. As soon as you hit 28, <laughs> it's like okay, you take an hour off the bedtime every year after that. But yeah, and that's the other thing is it's like yeah, he could easily give Gant some quality time, especially now that he knows Gant's girlfriend is bailing. Yeah, like, like your, just... your dude needs you. But then we have Doug is talking to Charlie while they're getting lunch and. We find out that she left her home because her mom would bring drunks home and would pass out. And then the drunks would decide that they would molest her instead. And she ran away from Cleveland and just yikes. But it's really, it is kind of a cute moment, though, when they're checking out. And Ross is like, we'll take this and this and the five rolls she has in her pockets. (sighs) And then once again, we can't let ourselves have it too much fun because we're going to immediately undercut this as uh, Gant. Uh, and Carter are seen talking about the uh, Christmas party plans for this evening. And Gant sounds so excited about going. I mean, he's clearly trying to like throw himself into this to not think about his fight he had with his girlfriend and her not showing up and everything. Like he's clearly trying to like, just enjoy this, have some fun times with his uh, roommate friend and like do Chris, a fancy ass Christmas Eve. Right. And he's away from home too. Like he's from Louisiana. Like he's probably got no other friends here other than Carter. Like he's probably, this is, he's probably been banking on this for quite a while. And Carter is just an absolute shithead here. And is just like, Oh, I want to go like hang out with my girlfriend. There's a lady. Yeah. Like, and, and, of course, Gant brushes it off like he's trying to, you know, play it like it's no big deal and everything. But there's just so many. I mean, we've we've said this pretty much Gant's entire 
appearance on the show like there's so many red flags that telegraph his eventual ending and this is another one of them and it's this arguably the most upsetting this is the origins of eric foreman <sighs> oh yeah that was the other because i'm watching through house now just because i've never seen it as an amazon prime and i need some i need distracting media so I've... i was like hmm so we we I've been operating under the theory that after Gant leaves us on this show, he immediately like ins- like him his character on House is just him in purgatory, yeah, and having to deal with <laughs> Doctor House is yeah. just his penance. But yeah, the other thing I noticed is I haven't watched House in forever. I was obsessed with it in high school. Watching it now, I'm like, okay, ER is a medical drama. House is a soap opera. Oh yeah, like. It's it's a weird intersection between a medical drama, a soap opera, and a sci-fi show. Like there's yes, there's so many weird things going it's on. It's like with a monster it. of the week. Yeah, yeah, but with medicine, with a little dash of Sherlock Holmes in there too. Like it's well, that was the whole thing. Was it was supposed to be a medical Sherlock Holmes? That's why his name is House instead of Holmes, and you've got Wilson instead of Watson. <laughs> like I don't know if you guys knew that, but it didn't burn any uh, creative muscles coming up with those two. <laughs> We can't call him Holmes and Watson. That's too on the nose. What should we do? House and Wilson. All right. Is that lunch? Yeah, that That's was, lunch. That was, the, that was the whole point was to have it be a medical Sherlock Holmes type thing. Oh. And that's why he's a drug addict. Okay. Uh, <laughs> episode. Stay tuned for, Stay tuned to patreon.com slash the tone podcast where I'm sure we'll talk about House some more at some point as I, as I go through it. But for now, I think we all just kind of wanted to avoid talking about this next part. Yep. Because if it wasn't for the transphobia stuff in this, this would be the maximum shittiness part of the episode. Agreed? Yeah. There is one silver lining out of it, but yes, mostly agreed. Yeah. So Mark and Carrie are continuing their discussion, but now they're continuing, instead of in the lounge, privately, they're discussing patient X in the middle of the goddamn nursing area. God help me. I know what universal precautions are. Usually, what is it referred to here? Double gloves? You're going overboard with these guidelines. Well, what about employee X's participation in bloody trauma? I don't see anything wrong with that. Bloody trauma. Maybe that's the deal with Dr. Lewis. Susan HIV positive? I don't think so. Look, Susan is fine. That's what I said. Lydia's been sick a lot lately. Oh, shut your mouth. You know, I would have expected more from the two of you than gossiping about a co-worker's HIV status. Look, everybody, uh, Carrie and I have been hammering out a policy. There's no secret there. There shouldn't be grist for the rumor mill. Is there a reason we have to have HIV-positive employees in the ER at all? Well, according to current law, employee or employees X, we'll call them employee X, cannot be fired because of their HIV status. But they can stick their hands in a bloody trauma? Why not if they're gloved? Is this someone who got it from a needle stick? What difference does it make how they got it? These are the issues that we've been discussing. Should employee X be restricted to non-invasive procedures? Or continue with their duties? Won't universal precautions prevent transmission? Yeah, that's what they tell us when they send us in to work on HIV-positive patients. The real question here isn't in law and policies. It's do our patients have the right to know? This in no way has any reflection upon my opinion on employee X's work. Is there an actual employee X, or are we just talking? We're talking policy here, people. Employee X could be any one of us. Excuse me. Just would everyone stop calling me employee X? I am HIV-positive. Okay, so in order, ranked, who can go to hell? Uh, Lily, yep, Chuni, Lily, Chuni, Connie, uh, Mark. Uh, I think that's pretty much it because Doyle yeah. Doyle's pretty inoffensive here. Halle is a Carol. Halle is right. Carol is right. 
you know, like Carol, Carol only gets killed this episode because of her eye roll at the in, in the first trauma. Yeah. If it wasn't for that, Carol would be on. She, Carol would be in the good place. But otherwise, like she's going, <laughs> she's going down with the rest of them. She's just another boulder on Chip Mountain this episode. Oh, <sighs> but go Genie! Like that had to be so hard. And I mean, I can't even imagine like if my coworkers were talking like that about me and they didn't know it was about me. Mm. But fuck that. Yeah. It should be noted that throughout this in- throughout this entire scene, like about like ten seconds into it, genie comes up to the desk with some papers and just sort of hangs out in the back, watching everyone just be like, "Oh my god," just horrified. And and again, yeah. like I know we say this every episode, but like credit to Gloria Rubin for being able to portray the thought process of genie in that moment without saying a word until she steps forward and says what she says like you can see it on her face you can see her doing the internal calculation like am i going to let this continue am i gonna drag drag this out any further or am i just gonna take control of my own situation and my own destiny here and just get ahead of it and she manages to convey all that with just her face Mm-hmm. And like that's that's what's most impressive about that. Like she doesn't have to say the first word for you to understand the calculation that's going on inside of her head. All right, and moving right along there, uh, the conversation continues, and we have another audio for you. But now it's a little more private and involves Jeannie herself. We talked about this, Mark. You know the risks are a million to one that Jeannie will bleed into an open wound while suturing. I'm not saying she can't work. I'm just trying to set the boundaries of where she can work. You set the boundaries of triage and answering the phone. That's not her job. I have no trouble if she performs her duties within limits. Dispensing medication, that's fine. But some things aren't. For example, it says here, deep penetrating, poorly visualized cavities. Okay, that's from the CDC. I think that should be off limits. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that anyway. Okay, see, progress. You know, Mark, since I found out, I have been a lot more careful. Do you think I want to do something that may harm a patient? No, I don't. But unfortunately, The hospital administration has left it up to Carrie and I to create a policy that the state and federal governments can't seem to make up their minds about. I've agonized over this. I've considered quitting, but I believe my life can still have value. I can still help people. I'm sure you can. What else are you worried about? Dementia. You're fine now, but what if you decline? Dementia may be the first sign of full-blown AIDS. I've heard that there are some hospitals that have instituted a physician monitor, someone to help keep tabs on the person's health. I could do that. Okay. So that's one thing. What else? Uh, I love Jeannie so much. That line, my life can still have value, absolutely kills me. This is an incredible scene. In an in an otherwise very upsetting episode, this is a uh, I mean, not for not for content necessarily, like not for the spirit of the, of the conversation, but for the the conversation that they end up having, the way it is shot, because it starts out in like a three shot, like where you you got Mark on the left, you're looking directly at Jeannie, and you are and Carrie's on the right, and you're kind of just like you're you're just like the silent observer in this conversation, and the whole conversation is happening across the table with Jeannie. Not only is she not speaking, but she's not really reacting to anything that's being said. Like, it almost was like Jeannie was, I mean, it was, it almost definitely was like Jeannie wasn't there because they're speaking about her in the third person as if she's not in the room. But it almost was like Jeannie was like a ghost. Like, she wasn't there. Like, she was 
viewing this conversation as though she weren't in the room. And I have to imagine that was a, an intentional choice because it, it's it's too perfect not to be. And just, I don't know, the whole thing. And then when she finally does speak up, it's calm, it's rational, because as we know, the brunt of emotional labor in situations like that falls upon those most affected by it. So it's her responsibility to maintain her composure and keep her head cool and come, you know, come up with rational, reasonable solutions to solve this uh, issue, even though that's not right. Like, even though Mark and Carrie are the ones that have been tasked with coming up with this, Jeannie's the one that's being reasonable and Jeannie's the one that's getting creative and Jeannie's the one that's offering solutions to these problems. And it's such a true to life depiction of how something like this would go that people in charge are the ones that are going to wash their hands of it and just go like, well, we can't figure it out. We've tried nothing and, and we're all out of ideas. And Jeannie is the one who comes in and is like, well, I've heard about other places that do this. Why don't we try this? And they're both just like, okay. <laughs> so, Oh, I also love how she pointedly asks Mark, okay, what else are you afraid of? Right, yeah. Like, she's pr- clearly done her own homework. She's clearly done the research and is prepared to answer any and all questions he has. It The, the issue is that he's not interested in asking the question. He doesn't want the answers because he doesn't want to have the conversation. He would rather put his head in the sand and not think about it. And just he would just rather she not exist. Just herp dirt patient safety. Yeah. And so like, it, that's the thing here. And I, I just, like I said, it's, it's a, an incredibly masterfully done scene in uh, surrounding a, a rather upsetting topic and a rather upsetting episode, but it's a, but it's an, an impeccably done scene. Um, and then Jeannie walks out of the lounge and sees everybody looking at her kind of differently. And we get a great point of view shot from her as she's walking through. And she walks up to the admit desk and we, we clearly see Chuni and Connie gossiping about how she got it. And um, she walks past Carol and Carol just says, I wish I had known. And Jeannie snaps back with would it have made the two of us friends. Burn. So then from there, we have Doyle telling the husband uh, of the domestic violence victim that she may have to stay uh, for observation. Uh, And all the while, her and Malik are wheeling a, air quotes, corpse to the morgue. And of course, they are actually wheeling the domestic violence victim, Beth, uh, out to a cab waiting in the ambulance bay so that she can get on a bus to Abilene, Texas. I'm assuming it's Texas. I can't imagine there's more than one Abilene. And then we, we find out as uh, as the, the cab is pulling away, uh, she informs Malik. She was like, you won the pool. Congratulations. Uh, but she used the pool money for uh, Beth's cab fare. So all's well that ends well with this this one. You know, like th- this this is the one redeemable kind of through line storyline throughout the whole episode where and even even Doyle, you know, like we've talked about before, like she she toes the line with the Doug White Knight stuff. And this is probably the best best application of that at least to date for her. And then, unfortunately, Mark has to try and find a home for Nick the dog because his owner passed away. And Chuni was like, oh, well, what about Rachel? Rachel would love a dog. Why don't you Why don't you keep him? Because, you know, that's a decision you can just make. As, as Unilaterally. Uh, but also, after that, Ahmed's mom has shown up and is absolutely screaming at everyone about kidnapping her kid. And Duggan's insinuating that she's high and he's calling DCFS on her anyway. And Charlie thinks he betrayed her. Just add a little bit more salt onto the salt and pepper shitstorm that is this episode. Yeah, just a little bit. But then we go from there uh, back to the lounge where uh, Mark is giving giving Nick a bath where he turns out to be white, not gray. 
giving giving him a little bathy bath in the sink. And uh, I, I believe it's uh, I believe it's Mark who says he's uh, not he's not going to look a day over five because uh, Doug comes in and is like, "You're going to give your you're going to give your daughter a dog for Christmas." And it's like that dog's like eight; he's about to have a midlife crisis. <laughs> But just as they're just as they're having this uh, little discussion, Nick slips out of Mark's grasp and runs out of the lounge. And as Mark lunges to go and grab him, he slips and slams his head rather hard on the table, and uh, immediately opens up uh, a little gash above his eye. Um, which actually, if you're watching very closely, you can see a little sleight of hand by Anthony Edwards where he takes a uh, perfectly. Uh, perfectly clean kleenex and swaps it out for one that already has fake blood dabbed onto it mm. very is a very quick little move by Anthony. it was very slick but uh he goes out so now that uh, doug has run off after nick uh he's alone in the lounge so he walks out into the main er and the only person who's there to help him is genie and he asks her to do the stitches for him after she again putting the burden on herself she offers to get someone else for him in case uh he's uncomfortable and he's like no i want you to do it and go after that our next audio is a little bit of a sweeter moment in this pilot in this dumpster fire of an episode uh, we have carter and dr keaton exchanging christmas presents oh wow wow very william powell aren't they great silk <laughs> try it on yeah all right dr keaton yes dr benton is this a bad time no 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 i was just um Reviewing some anatomy. May I come in for a moment? Sure. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you for uh, letting me take such a large role in the Lopez uh, nephrectomy today. Oh, you did a great job. Thank you. That's actually why I'm here. I'd like to do another pediatric surgery rotation. Uh, well, you know, as you know, I, I won't be here for the next rotation. I know. Uh, I was hoping that you could leave your recommendation for me with your replacement. Um, well, you're a very good surgeon, um, Peter, but that, that's not enough for peds. You've got to live and breathe for children. Uh, you took this rotation just to challenge yourself, and I applaud that, but I can't, in good conscience, give up a space that could possibly be filled by a future pediatric surgeon. I'd be happy to talk to Dr. Onspot or Morgan Stern. You know, I hear that, that Don's doing some really interesting stuff in thoracics. No, 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 thank you. I, uh, I wouldn't want to waste any more of your time. Did I say sweet? I meant kind of brutal. Right. Starts out very sweet, and then Benton get, comes in and gets a dose of the really reels. I mean, yeah. You need to hear it. Yeah, he doesn't like kids. <laughs> he likes the challenge they present from a, on a surgical perspective but 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 cool little like you know point a to point b type thing though like contrast where peter is here you know where he he treats kids like such a nuisance and like you said like just he appreciates them as the challenge that they present as a pediatrics thing but then contrast that with what a good parent he ends up being to to reese later on that's true he goes through he he arguably is probably the best dad on the show by the end and I can imagine that, you know, actually having a child of your own. Right. Yeah. And changes, changes your perspective on a and, lot. And of things. just because you're good with your kid doesn't mean you are good with kids. But yeah. like still like it's a growth thing for him. And I think that is worthy of being commended. So, yeah. And we will get there with little baby Reese in a, in a couple of years. I'm so excited. 
a couple seasons rather, not a couple years in our time. <sighs> yeah, he Reese is coming up, isn't he? Yeah, him and Carla are fooling around. I was like, yeah, so that baby's gonna happen. Fuck um, around and find out. <laughs> yikes! Uh, so we go to Genie is stitching Mark up, and Mark kind of realizes the error of his ways, and that Genie should stay and continue her work because she's a great physician assistant. And um, Jeannie apologizes for lying to him. Ah, Jeannie didn't need to apologize. I'm just going to say that. Uh, and then Jeannie is in the lounge getting ready to head out, I think. And Or no, sorry. She was cleaning up after suturing Mark. Let me try that again. Jeannie is in the lounge cleaning up after suturing Mark. Mark has stepped out and Carol comes in. And Carol tells Jeannie about her suicide attempt and says, if we aren't friends, maybe we should be. Which I think is a thumbs up. I think that's a sweet moment. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think okay. I think both of these are are in their own ways and and to varying degrees. These are more on the positive side of the scale than the okay. negative. Like this is this is the stretch of the episode that elevates it out of the dumpster and takes it from a like pure F to like at least maybe C minus territory. Like we can at least salvage something out of this episode, and it's pretty much on the strength of these last th- this five to ten minute stretch here. Yep. Um, and then Doug is running up, he's headed home, he's running up his front stairs, and all of a sudden we see Charlie is waiting under the stoop, and she asks to crash with him because Abed's mom kicked her out. And he's like, uh, no. (laughs) But let's see what we can do. Because this storyline always goes well on ER, right? (laughs) What, uh, young women crashing with male doctors? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, it's us spending how he feels about it in season seven Uh or season eight. Moving on from there, we have uh, our next audio for you. Al finds Jeannie in the cafeteria and brings Jeannie all the Christmas cards that were addressed to them both. How sweet. Hey. Hi. How'd you find me? Uh, Dr. Weaver told me you were taking a break. I, uh... <clears throat> I got a lot of Christmas cards forwarded to me addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Al Boulay. thought you might like to look at them, too. You can sit down, Ally. Don't bite. <laughs> Aunt Nani. I wonder what get-rich-quick scheme she's looking for partners in this year. <laughs> Southwestern land development. Beats the envelope stuffing scheme. Yeah, and the roller disco. <laughs> uh, I also thought... You might like to have this. Where'd you find this? I finally got a chance to go through some of the boxes from the house. I I found my socket set, too. Remember that ridiculous tree in the old apartment? (laughs) There's nothing ridiculous about that, baby. That was a a prime piece of pine. Except it was about six feet too tall for a (laughs) studio apartment. You refused to cut the top off. No, that would have been sacrilege. But you can still see the stucco scratches. Like you didn't eat all the popcorn before I could string it with the cranberries. That's different. Oh. Because you know how I feel about popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) The Al Boulay Redemption Tour continues. Mm Mm-hmm. Ah, memories. Also, what is the envelope stuffing scheme? I'm curious about that. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I don't know. Multi-level marketing schemes are a hell of a thing. I was going to say, but, but in the 90s, we didn't have Facebook, so the multi-level marketing schemes came through the mail. I yeah. guess. Or to your front door. Cutco knives, anyone? 
I want a real Christmas tree, but we have no room for one this year. But That's I want true. I want how it smells. Especially now that the corner is your work desk. It has to be. I'm sorry. It's okay. We'll set up our nice little fake one that we've had the last couple of years and put up our Christmas lights and have our, have ourselves a, a festive old time. It's not the, the last, same. I think it was at least the last year we were in Alaska. It might have been the last two years. We One year we waited like way too long to actually put up the tree. And then the next year, I think we put the tree up super early and then just never got around to decorating it. And it was the most depressing thing ever. Just having <laughs> oh. this bare, fake pine tree sitting in your living room for no reason. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to put ours up this year because we're not even going to be here for Christmas. Yeah, so. Okay. Yeah, ours is in a, like... That doesn't mean we still can't enjoy it well into January because we're too lazy to take it down. <laughs> our, when did we take ours down this year? Like February 2nd or something? I mean, I leave the Christmas lights up until they just burn out and I just buy another <laughs> like $10 string and <laughs> the next year. Call it good. It's true. But that's because we we have nice little hooks for them above our window, yeah. so we and just it's leave a them nice, up. I like the colors. I like <laughs> aspects of Christmas. I know I was like ragging on Christmas earlier. I like aspects of Christmas. I like the color it brings like to our apartment. You like decorating the tree. You yeah. like Lizzie's heart's growing three three presents. times its size or whatever the whatever the rhyme is. I haven't watched Grinch. Yeah, you go to the hospital for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! <sighs> we call that a medical condition. There folks. we go. So we go from there, we, we uh, see Carter looking for Gant, and he finds him, he has fallen asleep, sitting on the floor of one of the treatment rooms as he is drowning in charts, uh, but wants to finish them up before uh, he leaves for the night, uh, since he doesn't need to bother with showing up at Carter's family. He, uh, so he's clearly like, you know, oh no, I'm just going to like absorb myself in work to forget about the fact that my girlfriend doesn't want to come visit me and my only friend here has ditched me to go hang out with a girl. Gant's normal one continues. Um, yeah. But Carter, you know, again, trying really at this point though, like it feels so much more disingenuous from Carter that like, it doesn't feel like he's really looking out for Gant at this point. It feels like he wants to absolve himself of guilt. So he's like insisting that Gant go home to sleep at some point. You know, but Gant's like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Leave me alone. And, you know, they, they again, telegraphing the hell out of spoilers next episode. What eventually Wait. happens. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad we get to do that next episode after this fucking dumpster fire. Like, no hope that the next one's going to at least maybe it'll be a better constructed dumpster fire than this one. Yeah. It could still be a very good episode. Right. I don't remember like the ep- like the overall episode quality as a. Th- I I vividly remember the event. Yeah, though. you can have a good upsetting episode, whereas this is a not good upsetting episode. <laughs> but they just they do such a good job of not only like they're telegraphing it, but they're not necessarily telegraphing it one way or the other. Like what eventually happens to him, as far as whether it was an accident or whether it was intentional. But we will cover that when we get to uh, next episode. All right. Um, and then we have Benton shows up at Carla's. She answers in the feistiest, shortest little red robe. And she is just so goddamn thirsty all the time. And Benton is not steamy enough for this woman. Like, I do not see that they have any chemistry at all. I saw much more chemistry between him and Jeannie. These two are just like cardboard. It just it certainly fizzled quickly. Like I said, I, I, I saw it when they first introduced her their first like at the cookout yeah Yeah. there was chemistry there but it's gone now i i don't know what it is i think now that they actually have to live up to it it just does not sit i think it's maybe because carla's more one-dimensional than i remember yes she's she's all just like huh she is all thirst trap like she (laughs) that's all she is is just wall-to-wall horny 
I want to clarify, there's nothing wrong with being wall-to-wall horny, but when you're a TV character and that's all we get to see Right, yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Like, we don't get, like, like, they've established she owns a restaurant. Why don't we get to yeah. see more of that? Like w- she's a successful businesswoman, an amazing right. cook. Why don't we why, get to hear about why that? is her entire yeah. identity reduced down to just thirsty for Benton? Like it's just it, like you said, it comes off very one dimensional and, and it, it makes her uninteresting as a result. But yeah, so she lets him in. They presumably have sex. Do Merry they make Christmas. Reese? <laughs> Timeline, I think, is a little off there. But in any event, we go from there to Carol's uh, Ukrainian Christmas party, complete with full wardrobe and everything, much to Doug's delight when he shows up. But her mom is also running around frantically, so mad that she forgot to bring extra chairs for their unexpected guests. And uh, when Doug shows up, he brings Charlie along and asks if she can stay at Carol's because in a, in a brief, uh, unexpected moment of self-awareness from Doug, he realizes that it's probably not a good idea to let a homeless 14-year-old girl sleep, uh, spend the night in his apartment. With a history of sex work. Yeah, like, that's not going to look great, Doug. So, you know, kudos to you for recognizing that. And we called it Mark bringing a dog to his daughter at his ex-wife's house. It might, it might not be the worst, it might not be the best idea. Mark gets to the house with Rachel Sled and Nick in tow and looks in the window and there's Jen and Rachel and Craig all playing with two Labrador puppies. Like beautiful, perfect, well-groomed Labrador puppies with a bow on them. So Mark uh, decides to maybe leave and uh, we get this conversation. Nick, let's get out of here. Uh, I, I didn't hear you ring the bell. Uh, Jennifer, guess who's here? You won't believe what he's got with him either. It's just funny because uh, I got Rachel a couple of Labrador puppies for Christmas, and now here you are with a, what is he, some kind of a setter? A uh, mixed breed, actually. Daddy! Daddy! Hey, sweetheart. Mm. Ah. Hi. Mark, we weren't expecting you until tomorrow. Yeah, well... Daddy, you bought me a doggie. Great minds think alike. <laughs> uh, actually, I, uh, he's my dog, and I just wanted you to meet him. <laughs> Ow! Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're, Are you okay? You're okay? Bad dog. Bad dog. The doggie didn't mean it. No, no, of course he didn't, darling. Here, let me take a look. Has he had a shot yet? Craig, let Mark take a look at it. He's a doctor. Come on in, Mark. Good doggy. <laughs> Who thought that was a good idea? I mean, forethought and uh, collaborative parenting was never high on Mark's priority list, even when him and Jennifer were married. So, that's very true. you know, it's kind of a, a microcosm of why their marriage failed anyway. So, you know, I, I will say uh, points to whoever does the casting for uh, bothering to find and bring back Craig from early in season two like a full season ago where we saw him for two seconds and it would have been very easy to recast they managed to go back and get the original craig and bring him back for this nothing appearance here like kudos i was going i was going to ask if they had used the same craig same craig yep and also i have to note here that uh jennifer has completed her transformation into the t1000 because her hair has somehow (laughs) managed to get shorter she appears to be cut out of liquid metal and is just ice cold 
they've completely evaporated any warmth out of that woman. And I hate that word warmth because it implies that there's this like baseline level of nurture that needs to exist in all women, which is not true. But it's like Lauren pointed out in previous, like there clearly there's a, there's an agenda with Jennifer's makeup, wardrobe appearance. Like she is meant to elicit a very specific emotion. And what I mean is that they're very good at eliciting that emotion out of her because every time she's on screen, she sucks all the air out of the room. She's the ice cold nineties career woman. Yeah, I guess like, I don't know, but like she seems to take it to a, like to a, a level beyond that like it's it's honestly impressive you know that she manages to be as intimidating as she is we we've always been meant to not like jennifer oh 100 percent. yeah she, she never had a chance but yeah mission accomplished in in spades which, which that poor actress to play one of the most unpopular characters on such a huge tv show yeah guess if you're gonna do your job do it right yeah, yeah. I love that dog so much, but, um, good boy, good puppy, (laughs) but then we, or good doggy, but then we go back to Carol's party. Charlie asks Doug to come and make a Christmas egg with her. And it's just a very cute moment between her and Carol and Doug and just like, Doug's like, all right, I'll be right there. Um, and then Carter and Abby are watching the, how the Grinch stole Christmas while snuggling. And they start to try and recite the night before Christmas poem. And in the middle of it, Carter's just like, and I'll miss you so much. And she's like, that's not how that goes. Uh, Is this the last we see of her? Nope. Next episode. Next yeah. episode? Okay. Yeah. Spoiler. Next episode. We, next episode we is two, a doozy. Yeah. We lose two major characters that we've been following. We round out the episode. Doyle sees the abusive asshole husband sleeping in chairs and does nothing of it good. Let him twist in the wind. Let him wait. Yeah. Uh, and sees that the Christmas tree that, that has been set up in the ER is missing something and you know, she tells Jeannie that she was real gutsy today for outing herself as HIV positive. And uh, one of the things that Al gave Jeannie was the old star that they had on their on their Christmas tree before they were divorced. And Jeannie puts that star on top of the ER tree. And Doyle is like, hey, you should put that on your family tree. And Jeannie just replies, I just did. Oh, the Christmas episode is saved. God, what a schmaltzy, saccharine, bullshit, sweet. Ugh, I hate it. Okay, so do we want to do quick episode takes? <laughs> yes. My thought is if we took that first third of the episode out, it would have been fine. I mean, my second least to least favorite moment happened halfway through the episode, so... <laughs> it, it's a mess, like, from beginning to end, I, I feel like. Yeah. There's there's so much wrong with this episode that I feel like you would need a whole other episode just to really dig into why and how, like, it's... To, it, it, how you would go about fixing it, like... Because there, there are parts that you just have to take out wholesale. Like there's, there's parts that are there are there is no saving. You would just have to fix them and replace them with something else, and then you have other parts like this, like the end here, where it's like the ending doesn't really make sense. Like it's it's just overly schmaltzy Christmas schlock for the sake of it, you know. Like you were, you mean to tell me that after the events of today, Jeannie's take home message is these people are my family. I don't think so. Like, I don't think that's the take home message here. I think that might be what Hallmark would like you to believe. But like, no, dude, like they literally conducted almost a witch hunt for you mere hours ago. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, these are my family. Fuck off. Like, this is just. mm, Yeah, there's there's a there's a whole bunch wrong with this episode. Thank you for saying that, because I got so sucked into the Hallmark moment that I didn't even put two and two together. 
yeah like it's it's mm, there's just there there's a lot to unpack with this episode and th- there are not that's not to say that there are not good moments in it i would say that there is probably out of the 42 or ish minutes of screen time here i would say you have probably 10 to 12 that are worth saving i think that's a fair assessment that's about 25 percent yeah out of, out of and all, all the, almost all of them would involve gloria rubin right mm-hmm. yeah all, yeah uh, once again gloria rubin carrying the load here but the other 75 percent at the very least or at the very best it is dispensable like it could just as easily stay or go but then there's other parts that just need to go wholesale so it's it's definitely the worst episode of the season and it's a contender for one of the worst episodes of the show to this point yeah it's definitely on my i'm fine never watching it ever again list and honestly you wanted me to give it a letter grade i give it an f there's yeah there's just not enough that redeems it here to make it worth watching d Uh, team y d over f because there were those few moments in okay, there. Like, it wasn't enough. a complete failure. It was still not great. It was hardly a passing grade, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a, a D's fair. I mean, it's... But in any event, I mean, go just go watch the, the Gloria Rubin stuff and skip the rest of the episode. Which pretty much just listen to our audio clips in your stuff. <laughs> exactly. F as in turf. Huh. <laughs> All right, well, that's about going to wrap up our episode for today. Thank you all very much for listening, as always. This show is brought to you in part by our patrons over at patreon.com slash Podcast. For only a dollar a month, you can get access to our show, show notes each week. For only $5 a month, you can get access to the full season recap episodes, a free sticker featuring our favorite, de- favorite desk clerk, Jerry, and two-week early access to all of our cast and crew interviews. Also, once our stretch goals are met, you'll get access to a monthly bonus show called The Lounge, where we'll talk about whatever's going on for us in our lives and pop culture in that moment, as well as monthly movie commentaries, where we'll watch and talk about a movie featuring an ER cast member. We'd also appreciate it if you would follow us on our social media accounts. We are at Set the Tone ER on Twitter. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash the Tone Podcast. And we are at Setting the Tone Podcast on Instagram. Our theme music, as always, is provided to us by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. And Daniel, where can folks find you at? They can find me on Instagram at Dan.U. That is Y-O-U dot E-L. They can also find me on my other podcast, The Popular Court, with my co-host Jake Terrell, where we do a different pop culture topic each episode and put it through a little mock trial. And Lauren, where can folks find you at? Now that the world's no longer on fire, you can find me at my personal Twitter at lowbob92345. And you can also find me on Twitter. I am at randomgamer. That's G-I-M-3-R, as well as on the Popular Quartz YouTube channel doing a Let's Play of Titanfall 2 with new episodes that out every Friday. You can find those videos and more at youtube.com slash thepopularcourt. Thanks again, everyone, very much for listening. Please join us again next time, and have a great week.